Hello everyone and welcome. This is your host Molly Rowan Leach of the Peace Alliance's ongoing free telecouncil series Restorative Justice on the Rise. This audio archive features Maori elder Kim Workman. We hope you'll enjoy this audio archive and also visit the website dopeace.us that's d-o-p-e-a-c-e dot u-s and click on the Restorative Justice tab for all the archives and upcoming guest information. Thank you for your support of this series and your participation. This council is meant to be a circle for all of us to discuss and share this important issue. Thank you and see you again soon at the councils. Good evening, everyone, and such a warm welcome to you all. This is Molly Rowan Leach. I'm your host for this ongoing series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, brought to you by the Peace Alliance. This is a free ongoing series, and especially in the month of January, we are honoring indigenous practices and ways as the foundational roots of restorative justice as we know it and are learning to re-embrace it in our times, especially here in the United States, but worldwide. Many of us that uh, are regulars on this council uh, have such an amazing background and diversity in what you are up to individually in this field, and we're so grateful for your participation. A lot of times uh, the intention is to get to your questions sooner in the council, and our guests have been just so robust that at times it's been a little difficult to um, fit in everybody's questions. But I do want to emphasize again the intention of this time together tonight and every time we come together is meant for you and for your um, feeling able to open up any questions, comments, or otherwise uh, during this hour together. To do that, as many of you know, you press 1 on your telephone keypad. And also, just to mention, we've been developing the restorative justice um, piece on the Do Peace website, the, the section for it. And we've provided, hopefully, a little bit easier navigation for you to find all of the archives from this season as well as last season. And you can go to dopeace.us, and then you'll see there's a, a tab on the far right hand as you're facing the screen that says restorative justice. If you roll over that tab, you can, you can see there's a menu now that, that gives you some options as to where you might want to navigate to. Again, you can find the series schedule there for all of this month um, as we, again, honor indigenous perspectives in RJ. And then you can also access, for example, this past Sunday's call with Dr. Johan Galtung and all of the other people that have been distinguished guests in our council circle with us. You can access those archives there. So without further ado, I'm just really, really pleased and so thankful for the power of technology tonight. Um, it's actually tomorrow for our special guest, speaker, Kim Workman. I just would love to share just a little bit about Kim. He is of Nati Kanunu 
and Rung Gitani descent. I, I'm speaking that slowly of Maori, I believe, descent, those two tribes. He's a retired public servant. He's the executive director of Rethinking Crime and Punishment. And he's had a career that has spanned roles in the police, the Office of the Ombuds, Ombudsman, State Services Commission, Department of Maori Affairs, and Ministry of Health. He was head of the prison service from 1989 to 1993. He's a graduate of Massey University and has completed postgraduate study at the University of Southern California and Stanford. He is currently a senior associate of the Institute of Policy Studies uh, for Victoria University. He was appointed to the position of Na National Director for Prison Fellowship International in 2000 and retired from that position in 2008. As you might recall, some of you who were with us, we, we've gotten a chance to have a wonderful conversation with Lynette Parker from Prison Fellowship International and her, her time with us is also within the archives. In 2005, Kim was the joint recipient of the International Prize for Restorative Justice. And in 2006, Kim joined with Major Campbell Roberts of the Salvation Army to launch the Rethinking Crime and Punishment Strategy. Kim was made a Companion of the Queen's Service Order in 2007, and in that same year, he was appointed as a Senior Associate to the Institute of Policy Studies, Victoria University. He is currently completing a postgraduate diploma in religious studies, and I just really appreciate and so honor all, uh, all the work that you have devoted to in your lifetime, Kim, and, and warmly welcome you into the circle tonight. Welcome. Thank you, and it's a real honor to, to take part in a conversation which focuses on indigenous practice within the retributive justice uh, framework. Because so often uh, we develop uh, westernized models and forget uh, where restorative justice uh, came from. Mm. Well, we'll definitely want to converse about that deeply tonight. And I just I wondered, as we often do, to start out tonight, would you would you share with us a story of what brought you into the work that you do and, and have you spent spent a good portion of your time in New, Ze New Zealand? Yes, well most of my time <coughs> um, has been in New Zealand and uh, my first uh, occupation was as a police officer for 16 years and um, I began you know, over a long period of time, I guess you would say that I'm a slow learner, I became more and more concerned about the way in which justice uh, was implemented and practiced uh, within New Zealand. The futility of prison, the futility of, um, of focusing entirely on punishment, and it didn't strike uh, a compatible note with my own experience being brought up as a Maori uh, boy in a village in which um, a lot of the justice was done informally without the intervention of the police or child welfare authorities or others. 
uh, and seem to bring about a, a good result. Mm. Would you would you be willing to share with us a bit of of what you witnessed and certainly were a part of at times growing up in um, Maori traditions surrounding what yeah. we call justice? Yes, certainly. Um, my, my first awareness of this was uh, as a, I guess, nine or ten-year-old. And um, in our village, a lot of the men had returned from the Second World War, having fought in the Māori Battalion, noted, I have to say, for its uh, risk-taking, its um, a, a very warrior-like activity and so on. And that was something that uh, we were always very proud of, the way that we conducted uh, war. But unfortunately, um, the traumatization that occurred of the men uh, when they returned meant that a lot of our women and a lot of our children were the subject of physical uh, abuse. And my, my grandmother in the village had a role. Uh, there were people that had particular roles. And well, I'm not sure how they came about, but um, I think they were mandated by the community because of the respect in which those people were held. And both my um, grandmother and my father had a role in monitoring the behavior of family and the way they treated their children. So when it became clear that a child was being beaten or abused, my um, grandmother would march to the house and remove the child physically from the house and take possession of the child. Uh, and and the, she would often walk the child through the village so that people knew who was in trouble. So there was an element of shaming involved, uh, you know, and recognition that that person had exceeded the boundaries of reasonableness. And then there was a negotiation that took part around the conduct of that uh, family, which would be conditional upon them changing their ways and eventually regaining a custody of the child, but under sort of informal monitoring by the village and uh, with an, uh, an expectation that they would behave differently. Sometimes that would take weeks, sometimes it would take months. And it always seemed to me um, a far superior method of dealing with those issues than reporting the matter to the police, having the uh, offender arrested and often separated permanently from the family imprisoned possibly uh, and um, and the victim is not only the child but the the wife often uh, you know being left to fend for themselves so it was a matter of trying to restore balance within the community uh, in a way which both uh, demonstrated disapproval of the behavior but had as its end goal uh, reconciliation and restoration. So that was um, embedded in my mind. Uh, and when later in life um, I, I had reason to 
see to apply those same principles. Uh, when I was head of the Department of Māori Affairs, based at Rotorua, which is a very strong Māori uh, Māori uh, community uh, city, and um, the uh, outlying regions were also heavily populated by Māori, and often they preferred their traditional ways. The local police chief came to me and said, we have a family, we are convinced that the father is committing incest on the child and we can't prove it because no one within the family or the community will talk to us. And we'd like you to keep an eye on this. And and uh, I decided to hold a meeting with our elders, our community elders, and told them what had happened and who it was. And, and they said, I think we need to deal with this in a traditional way. Mm. So we called... You know, we called the family uh, to a meeting, and we had it at a meeting house called the Marae, and present were, were the whole family, plus uh, members of the uh, community eldership and and other relatives. Uh, and the, this was a classic uh, way of dealing with offending in the in the times before Europeans came to New Zealand. And the whole accusation was was laid on the uh, uh, offender. And to my uh, surprise, the offender admitted it immediately. And I think that was one element that struck me that typical of the Māori approach is that it was considered to be less than manly to defend or to deny guilt, um, it was a sign of of uh, status to acknowledge your responsibilities at the outset, mm. uh, which hasn't done our people much good under the European system because they have a bad habit of confessing to everything, mm-hmm. even when they haven't done it. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, then um, he was invited to comment, and then the um, the victim was asked to speak, and a mother and another daughter. And they all spoke about how they felt about the offence. The the victim spoke about how she felt worthless and as a chattel, but was conflicted because she loved her father. The mother talked about how she had been protecting him because that was her duty, but she felt unhappy about that. Uh, the other daughter, the younger daughter, talked about how she was fearful that she might be the next victim. And then it went right around the room. Uh, People were sitting around the outer walls of the the house and each person spoke in turn about uh, and reflected on this. In some cases, they drew on mythology and uh, religious beliefs to emphasize the wrongdoing. In other cases, they sang ancient uh, songs or chants which talked about uh, the evil of incest. Um, And um, some drew on their own genealogy and the 
offender's genealogy to make the point that this was not part of what they believed in and so on. And at the end of that process, uh, we had prayer and then we slept. And in the morning, the elders decided what would happen. So they determined that the man would sleep from then on uh, in a shed at the back of the house. He would not sleep in the house until such time as both his daughters had left the house to work in the city. Uh, secondly, he was stripped of his speaking rights at the at the Mariah, the meeting house, and he was not allowed to occupy the meeting house if there were school children present. Uh, if he wanted to have sexual intercourse with his wife, he would have to do that during the daytime when the children were away from the house. And this was to continue until you know both children had left. Um, three years later, the youngest had left the house. There was a ceremony at the meeting house in which he was welcomed back uh, into the community and uh, regained his speaking rights, was allowed to sleep in the house with his wife uh, and resume a normal existence. Now, there's a lot of differences between that and the way uh, Europeans, or Pākehā we call them, white people, mm -hmm. conduct their, their justice. And um, some of the, you know, some even some Māori are a little bit conflicted by it because they worry about the impact of that uh, engagement on the victim. Uh, you know, here she was talking about her the fact that she had been, you know, uh, had sex with her father in front of the whole community, and would she feel, uh, you know, unhappy about that? Would she be traumatised by that? But I think the important point is that in this sort of indigenous restorative justice, the rights of the community uh, take precedence over the rights of the individual victim. And so, in a way, the community was bearing the responsibility on behalf of the victim. And the victim, uh, as far as I could tell, was pretty comfortable with that arrangement. Um, the second uh, issue was that, um, as I said before, uh, innocence or guilt was not in question. It was assumed that if the person was responsible, they would acknowledge it from the outset. Um, and the third point, which is quite different from, and quite a subtle difference, is that um, there is no word in the Māori language for forgiveness. Mm. And, and it's not a matter of forgiving, it's a matter of uh, rubbing out uh, the, the, the harm. And when the Māori, uh, when the Māori people were, um, came into contact with the early missionaries and the early missionaries translated, for example, the Lord's Prayer, uh, they couldn't find a word uh, for forgive us our trespasses. So they used the word muru, which is about 
reciprocity. And mm. that means that if you harm somebody, um, there has to be a reciprocal cost. And um, that cost, you know, is determined. Um, and people expect to pay that. Even So it may not be the offender themselves that pay it. It may be the community uh, from which that offender comes. So the, the word forgiveness does not feature strongly within that system. Uh, and so th there are some subtle differences um, that often uh, non-Indigenous people uh, fail to appreciate. Mm. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is wonderful, Kim. And I, I'm just wondering, um, you, you went into something quite naturally of where I was hoping we might discuss here for a moment, and that is, um, again, the honoring of these ways and what, what has worked well and what seems to make most sense in, uh, you know, for the humanity of uh, all involved. And in thinking about our Western systems, of course, um, that so many of us are on the ground doing what we're doing and learning and really finding um, some, some great ways to integrate with the existing punitive model that has been in place here in the U.S. and, of course, beyond. But wh how do you think we might deepen our learning curve and our understanding? What are, what are some of the primary areas that we could really improve in, in grasping what we could learn from, for example, the Maori practices and, and paradigms, you know, the, the worldviews? Is, and is that a part of it? Well, I think, I think it is, and very often what happens uh, when we experience that indigenous um, practice is that if people are not uh, culturally aware and of the subtleties of, um, of, of that approach, uh, they tend to co-opt aspects of the practice. Uh, to a Western model rather than uh, allow that model to develop in its own right and under its own uh, sort of cultural uh, framework. And so the challenge really is to try to capture the essential elements of, of restorative you know, practice. Uh, and allow that to occur within a Western setting um, without violating uh, the indigenous principles. Very difficult to do. And of course, when we deal with bureaucracies, and I've been a bureaucrat, I was one for 45 years, our, our um, instinct is to try to standardize and describe things in a way which will um, require people who are funded to provide a service of that kind with some deliverables or outputs that they have to um, you know, come up with. Uh, and so what over time what happens is that we lose the underlying uh, ethos or the spirit of the uh, encounter 
uh, to a set of um, instructions or principles which are documented and which people are expected to uh, comply with. Uh, and over time, uh, it becomes a very uh, bureaucratic and unfeeling process which uh, loses its flexibility. And um, I think this is uh, somebody referred to it the other day as the McDonaldization of restorative justice. In other words, uh, you know, you, you, you describe it and then you franchise it. Uh, and the expectation that people will understand the underlying approach, and often they don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Being being um, a person perhaps born in the United States, someone who has been born into quite a culture of isolation and individualism, what would you recommend, uh, even if even the best of us who are really fully present and honoring and and really deeply in that subtle realm, moving um, perhaps in a, a circle with their community. You know, there's some incredible people doing um, restorative circles in, like, for example, Seattle and in Florida and Virginia and all over the place they're popping up. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, how does a, a person who has come into a cultural paradigm of punishment also help themselves into being able to better serve and honor the indigenous paradigms that would be seemingly so enriching and helpful to um, integrating into what we're, you know, I think many of us are attempting to integrate and learn um, in this very moment. I, I, you know, from my own experience and having introduced restorative justice into the prison system, for example, um, I think there are two, two or three things that need to be present for that to be successful. Uh, the first is to find people who are sympathetic to what you're doing and who have the power and influence to allow you to do it. And often uh, I found, for example, within the prison system, um, when I was head of prisons, of course, I could uh, you know, basically do what I wanted. And I remember taking a, a man who had killed his cousin due to be released and was terrified of returning to his community because the community had vowed to kill him when he came back. And uh, in brief, what I did was to arrange a meeting between uh, him and the victim's, uh, the, the murder victim's family. But we held it, and they were all Māori, but we held it at the graveside of his victim. And I uh, secured this young man's uh, release from prison and had him stay at my home for a couple of days and then took him to the meeting and he, at the meeting, expressed his remorse for what he had done. Uh, and there was a, an appropriate re indigenous response to that. Now, 
that was considered to be, uh, it was, I think, in 1989 or 1990, it was considered to be foolhardy, extreme and dangerous, and I was officially cautioned by the Minister of Justice for what I did. But when people saw that when he left, he was able to live peacefully within the community and there was no further murder, then they started to think that perhaps there may be some merit in this. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, in prison fellowship, uh, the head of the prison system and one of the senior managers were both men committed to the ideal of restorative justice from a Christian position. Mm-hmm. And they were able to allow me to carry out restorative justice conferences within the prison system for people who had been convicted of serious crime, um, murder, uh, rape, harm, robbery, and so on, with their victims, sometimes five or six years after the event. And we, what they saw was that it transformed the offenders' lives because offenders that had resisted doing programs to address their rehabilitation as a result of meeting a victim and being able to express their remorse became motivated to change and started to work towards their rehabilitation and, and return to the community. And victims who, who took part in the conferences uh, said that they felt that this helped the healing process for them mm-hmm. uh, over the long term. They weren't prepared to meet the offender five years before, but given five years, uh, you know, six years, they decided that I'd like to meet the offender and tell them what I think of him or her. Mm-hmm. Or I, I would really like to know what motivated this person to do this dreadful thing. Or saying, I would like to think that this guy is going to leave prison and not do the same thing again. And I'd like to hear it from his own lips. So often those are the sorts of things that motivated the victim to agree to a meeting or to seek a meeting with the offender. Mm-hmm. And we have never had, I think we held 70 of those conferences over four or five years, never had, uh, you know, anything that went bad. And in fact, what did happen, though, was that dozens of people sought similar uh, meetings, but we simply didn't have the resources to meet the demand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think but- that's, you know, having having a champion, having... Somebody in the community that is prepared to support you and to allow you to do this work, and often doing it under the radar, not publicizing it to any great degree, mm-hmm. but, uh, but by word of mouth encouraging people, talking about the principles, uh, and, then, and then working from that basis. And what we found was that prison officers became enthusiasts and would often seek out prisoners that they thought could benefit from the process. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just want to just pause here for just a moment and thank everybody for participating tonight and remind you that the lines are open now, um, pressing one on your keypad if you'd like to ask a question. And tonight, of course, we're talking with 
Kim Workman, who is the Executive Director of Rethinking Crime and Punishment. And I'd just like to point you to the website for Rethinking Crime and Punishment, which is located in New Zealand. Um, and that would be rethinking.org.nz. That's rethinking.org.nz. So just, um, again, we have another half an hour tonight together in our conversation, and given that the intent is for some conversation in circle, welcoming you to press one on your keypad if you have a question or comment from here on out. So, um, Kim, I'd like to, to just um, go into a space with you for a moment, kind of on that note that we were discussing around, um, I think there's many people in uh, the United States who look to New Zealand as one of the foremost models for a working system, given that the juvenile system, if I'm understanding correctly, in New Zealand is a community conferencing process and certainly just wanting to hear from you about how that how that came to be and any insights you have for how um, it might come to be in, in other systems such as the one here in the United States. Sure. Look, um, it's, it's an interesting history. Uh, at the time that that, that uh, issue uh, started to be seriously discussed. I was still in the police and a youth aid officer and the deputy national uh, coordinator of the youth aid section working with young offenders. And the practice in New Zealand was uh, very unsatisfactory. A lot of people were being referred to the criminal justice system uh, we had a very, very high uh, rate of institutionalization of young offenders. So we had these youth institutions. I mean, we're a very small country, 4 million people. Uh, but we had a number of institutions that held over 100 uh, young offenders between 13 and 15. There were no programs for them. The conditions were shocking. Uh, about 80% of the people in those institutions were Māori. There was a group of activists who revealed the racist nature of the system at that time, uh, where Māori were being, uh, you know, placed in these institutions at a far higher rate than non-Māori, and it ended up in a major uh, ministerial review and an investigation into racism within the Department of Social Welfare. I was part of that review. I was then moved into the State Services Commission and travelled for two years hearing the evidence. It was quite appalling. And that was in 84. It took another six years. But what happened was that stemming from that experience, developed the idea of having family group conferences and um, moving, uh, you know, closing down these institutions, which we did do, um, so that the uh, rate of youth imprisonment uh, went down by 90% in the course of three years. 
uh, so that very, you know, very few people wow. were sent into those prisons. And instead, using family group conferencing, which is a, a meeting with the offender uh, with, and their family, with the victim, if they wish to attend, with the police, with the Department of Social Welfare and other agencies, to determine what would be the best action, uh, appropriate action, for the offender. And so it was a form of restorative practice. Um, and what has happened since uh, that that took place uh, in uh, 1990, uh, 1993, I think, the that uh, people don't um, care about, uh, you know, the, the seriousness of the offence and so on. But the results speak for themselves. And there is, of course, 5% or so of, of youth offenders who are serious offenders who do need to be placed in custody for their own safety and for the safety of others. But for the most part, um, the great bulk of those young offenders stop offending, uh, you know, two or three years after they start. And we know from all the research that the earlier you put people before the criminal justice system, the longer they're likely to be part of it. So, you, you know, if you put people into the system at the age of 16 or 17, the, the chances are that they'll still be there when they're 25 or 26. If you can defer it till uh, you know to the last possible moment, then you increase the chances uh, that they will stop offending at an earlier age. And you know one of the unfortunate, um, I think, uh, facts about prisons is that they, in themselves, cause crime. And we know that, and mm -hmm. so that the longer you keep people in prison, the harsher the punishment, uh, the more likely they are to reoffend when they leave, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't seem to be a very efficient way of doing business. Well, Kim, have you seen um, success at all in the more violent crimes? Um, do you have any stories you'd like to share around anything you've witnessed? as far as a successful process, even for, say, murder or um, you know, what would be considered some of the more violent crimes? Yes. Look, I think one of, one of the myths around restorative justice, certainly it was a myth when I first started getting involved 15 years ago, was that restorative justice should be reserved for minor offending mm -hmm. and for young offenders and that it should never be used for serious offending. Well, all the research uh, suggests that the uh, restorative justice is most effective when it's used in crimes of violence. Um, and 
and less effective when it's used for property crimes and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an Australian study which uh, showed that when people engaged in, who had committed serious violence, uh, engaged in this process, not saying that there wasn't going to be punishment as well, but there was a, a 15 to 20% reduction in reoffending compared to those who were simply dealt with by the uh, you know, justice system without going through a restorative process. So we know that even in the cases of serious offending, however, I think for very serious crime, uh, when you've got uh, people, you know, who have committed serious crime at an early age and, and has continued to do so, you have to look beyond that and look at the causation factors. And very often the pattern is predictable that they come from dysfunctional families, come from poverty circumstances, uh, from drug and alcohol dependency, mental health issues, lack of education, uh, unemployment, lack of, you know, and so on. So those underlying causative factors um, come together and, and in, in the one person. And, you know, the way to deal with that person is when they're three-year-old, not when they're 17. Mm-hmm. And all, all the um, uh, efforts uh, around dealing with conduct disorder shows that if you apply a multi-systemic approach to those young offenders at the age of three or four, you've got an 80% chance of them uh, stopping their behaviour. If you wait until they're 17, you've got a 20% chance. Mm -hmm. So there are some very serious cases where restorative justice or or those approaches are not going to make much difference, often because people may have brain brain damage or or neurological dysfunctioning and are incapable of experiencing empathy. And, and, you know, so you've got a psychopathic or sociopathic personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, restorative justice or any other approach isn't going to make a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. One of the other aspects that seems very present um, here in the U.S. is uh, recently I was just discussing it with the director of a correction system in, in actually the Northwest, and he was asking me, what, uh, what about the adults? It seems that, that uh, with juvenile cases, this seems to be already in motion. Um, and, of course, you in New Zealand have been leading the way, really, in many ways, it seems, in, in, the, in, the, in transforming the system to be a family or community conferencing system. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on adult cases and how, how that might be working there, um, how we can really address bringing, it, bring, bringing restorative justice further into also adult cases here in the United States. Right. Well, certainly we've had uh, quite a lot of success in recent years in introducing 
retributive justice into the adult system, but not nearly enough. Um, and we've had some great um, promoters of retributive justice, the uh, principal youth court judge, the chair of the parole board, uh, people of that caliber, the chair of the Independent Police Complaints Authority have been very, very energetic in promoting restorative justice. Uh, and um, the difficulty, I think, is that most of the general public uh, equate restorative justice with being soft on crime. And they, they fail to appreciate uh, that Restorative justice is not a soft option. Uh, apologizing or seeking forgiveness is probably the most difficult thing to do. Uh, and to be held accountable directly for your behavior. But we have a very strong uh, populist lobby in New Zealand, as you do in the United States, that want to see people punished uh, and the more severely the, the happier they are. So, you know, things like three strikes, that sort of uh, legislation presents a real difficulty. And there are some people who hold the view that in the face of all that, um, all that restorative justice can expect to do in the adult system is to be on the margins and to be available uh, you know, when and where people feel inclined to use it. And in New, in New Zealand, we have some areas where a lot of restorative justice goes on in the adult system. And other parts of the country, in the South, uh, for especially, where uh, it's not even considered. And so often it can be a matter of judicial discretion or a lack of enthusiasm on the part of uh, the police or corrections. Mm. Mm-hmm. So one of, one of our strategies this year, and we have got some support I'm pleased to say, is to point out to the justice system, to the police, the corrections department, um, to the justice uh, ministry, that we want to see restorative justice evenly applied across the country and across all departments. And the police are starting to do that now. They're starting to introduce pre-charge warnings. They're starting to introduce a lot of diversion, which is based on uh, restorative justice principles. Uh, as a, Because they also understand that the longer we can keep people out of the system, uh, the more likely they are not to reoffend. Mm. I'm just um, wondering, too, about uh, the profound programming that you offer with Rethinking Crime and Punishment and wondered if you might share with us some of what's happening with that organization right now and anything else you'd like to share um, specific to what you're involved in, even as as, you, uh, as your CV states, uh, a retiree. <laughs> 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 well, 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 the um, Rethinking Crime and Punishment has been a really interesting um, project. We started in, in, in uh, 2006 at a time when the uh, 
government was being very punitive towards offenders, uh, where there was a very strong voice toward imprisonment, and the imprisonment rates had doubled in the previous um, eight or nine years. Uh, and there was no voice, really, in the public talking about uh, other approaches, alternatives to imprisonment, talking about the value of restorative justice, uh, rehabilitation, uh, justice reinvestment, and so on. So uh, we have a very active uh, Salvation Army in New Zealand that's uh, very much directed towards social justice issues, and we paired up with them and uh, formed this project and started, uh, felt that if we put out a lot of good information about what works, that people would feel conflicted, and especially public, uh, government departments and politicians, uh, saying, well, you know, what you're recommending, what your policies tell us uh, won't work. The evidence is very clear. Uh, but there are other things that do work in talking about those. So we started to do that. And I think I think we were ignored for the first two or three years. Uh, the media, you know, made fun of us. Uh, we got a lot of abuse and, and so on. Uh, but finally, um, people, what happened was that the government couldn't afford to imprison any more people. So they started to shift their thinking. Um, and of course, we were right in the gap. So when they started to rethink, we started writing policies. And I'm happy to say that at the beginning of last year, the government came up with a reducing crime plan, which mirrored our policies by and large. And mm. um, they they have now acknowledged that our their policies were really shaped around the work that we did initially in developing these mm -hmm. policies. And now, Kim, may I, I interrupt I must... you for just a moment? I, I just want to point yes. out to everyone that they can read more about that at the rethinking.org.nz website for Rethinking Crime and Punishment. There's an article there uh, called The PM's Goals in Crime Reduction 2012. Uh, I'm assuming that that's sure. what you're talking about, right? Yes, yes, and and, and uh, it, it's uh, what happened was subsequently they produced a plan which had most of that content in it, um, and and I'd like to hasten to add that this isn't a one one person show, you know, that what I had at my disposal was a lot of retired policy advisors and public servants, and a whole lot of very enthusiastic young uh, criminology and law students who gave their time voluntarily to write submissions to Parliament to uh, respond to legislation, um, to hold public forums, uh, to get in the face of the media. And the media has now shifted from um, sort of uh, making fun of it to contacting us uh, as the first point of referral when they've got a crime story or a crime issue to ask us what the evidence is for this or that and also to say who would be a good person to interview about this because mm -hmm. we made it clear that we don't want to be uh, speaking as an expert on everything we knew, but we do know who, who has the knowledge and mm -hmm. so we've deliberately brought in 
to the public arena are a lot of academics who formerly, you know, didn't have a lot of airspace. And and so we've created a, a network of people who the media can talk to. And we don't always agree with one another, but we are generally moving in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I think uh, that work, uh, you know, what, what we know is that people's uh, attitudes towards crime and punishment, all the research tells us, are largely formed by the time they're about four years old. And so even so, you may reason with them about a particular issue Um, Their views are pretty well set, and they don't change uh, easily. So um, rather than try to change the views of the general public, we we have focused on changing the views of people who influence policy. Uh And so we tended to to focus on politicians Uh uh, very much and on policy advisors and um, uh, you know, senior public service managers on the judiciary. I hold uh, involved in two or three seminars a year with the judiciary, talking about these things, and um, getting those people who are actively influencing the the shape of the criminal justice system mm-hmm. on board with the evidence, and um, mm-hmm. and. The, uh, 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 comes a point at which it is no longer possible for a politician to mislead the public or misreport things or or violate you know or play around with statistics and if they do we call them out I mean we go public straight away and say that is not correct we don't attack them personally mm-hmm. but say this is this is the evidence or this is the statistic, you know, when Mm -hmm. somebody says, oh, the murder rate has been going up for the last 20 years, we're able to come back and say, actually, it's been going down since 1990, Mm -hmm. and here are the figures, you know. Mm -hmm. So that we've got, I think, a point where politicians are a bit careful about what they say Uh uh, in in public, you know, uh, because they know that they'll be called out on it. And so we're getting a lot more honest, honesty into the system. Mm-hmm. And providing um, the accountability um, and the response it, it, without attacking, like, yes. saying immediately. Absolutely. When, when and data doesn't reflect yes. the truth. Uh-huh. And I think also seeking to be consulted, um, you know, asking to be consulted on an issue uh-huh. or asking to be able to provide uh, an independent uh, viewpoint into the think tank process or the policy process. Mm. And so, you know, often what we have to do is compete. It's not the public servants themselves uh, who give bad advice. The problem they have is that they are often acting under the direction of their minister, Mm -hmm. you know, their political master. And... So they're developing policies that they don't believe in, but but they are, are obeying the will of the of the minister. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you challenge the will of the minister, you can change the shape of policy. Mm. 
Well, this is a very important aspect of, of the work to be done and the services to be provided. And I, I do want to save a little bit of time here as we come close to the close of our time together, Kim, to just um, I, a web question was submitted um, that I think brings up a, a very important topic to bring to the surface tonight. And um, it's from, let's see here, I think it's from Amy. Let me just be, no, excuse me, it's from Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth, for your question. And she's asking about um, the relationship between Ma Maori peoples and uh, the white-skinned people. I don't remember the name that, that you mentioned earlier. But is there a restorative justice process to give um, give the Maori back whatever it is that they feel is being taken away from them through the presence of immigrants and colonists? And I just want to, that's the end of that question, but I think it, it, this topic is so important to address. And of course we see um, Idle No More happening up in Canada, quite a movement for um, bringing to the surface this really important issue of whitewashing indigenous cultures. So could, you, could we spend the last part of our council together tonight addressing this and certainly if you'd like to, to address Elizabeth's question as well and how, how we might integrate these practices for these really large cultural wounds. Yes, yes there, there is a process. We have uh, a treaty called the Treaty of Waitangi, which was established a covenant really between the, the, the Crown, the state, and Maori in, in 1840. And that was at the time, official time of settlement. Uh, and that treaty is an important document, it's a very short document, but it it gives uh, Māori uh, the right to be treated as citizens of New Zealand, but it also guarantees protection of, of their resources, uh, land, forests, fisheries, uh, language, and so on. Uh, and in 1984, uh, legislation was introduced which meant that tribes could lodge a grievance or complaint to, with uh, the government um, to um, seek redress for the harm that had been done to them historically going back to 1840 over the loss of land or, or um, fisheries or resources or whatever. And that pr process has been ongoing and resulted in some tribes being compensated, I mean only a, one or two percent of the real value of what they've lost, but nevertheless sufficient resource to allow them to become independently wealthy and to form uh, economic uh, ventures which have made some tribes very powerful within the nation. Uh, that process is ongoing and often the settlement is accompanied where appropriate by an apology from the from the crown uh, and, and a, you know a public statement of apology for the wrong that has been done so um, we do have that process uh, it's a very complex process I'm, uh, I would I wouldn't say that it was 
totally built on a restorative uh, framework, but it is aimed towards um, you know addressing the harm that has been done by the crown over over many years. Mm. So I think that that forms that basis. Uh, the race relationship between Māori and Pākehā, you know, Māori and, and, and white people, um, is, a, is much more complex than that. And while there's, in New Zealand uh, there's not a lot of overt racism, uh, personal racism, uh, to the extent that there is, for example, in Australia, there's a lot of structural discrimination bound up in the way that um, government systems function. And in the criminal justice system, for example, Māori are imprisoned at a rate uh, six times higher than non-Māori and are remanded in custody at a rate 11 times higher than non-Māori. And there's statistic after statistic which would suggest that while uh, we can account for some of that discrepancy in terms of the fact that Māori are at the lower socio-economic uh, level and uh, you know suffer from poverty and all those uh, negative factors, there is an element of it which uh, would seem to be based on racism, and uh, and some of that racism is regionalised particular locations. Uh, the governments, uh, successive governments, have really tried to uh, have attempted to avoid that, addressing that issue, and uh, rethinking has been very active in bringing this issue to the fore, and saying that you know you can no longer pretend that this issue doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. We need to examine the systems to address those um, in inequities. So just in closing tonight, Kim, do you have um, anything you'd like to share about uh, you know, particular resources that people might look to for more information? Of course, your website at rethinking.org.nz. Um, but is, is there anything else you'd like us to be aware of tonight, of what's going on um, in your realm? Well, well I think there, uh, just to say that um, the issue of restaurant justice from an in indigenous perspective has not been that well pursued in New Zealand. And in fact, one of the issues for us in New Zealand is the lack of theoretical analysis. I think uh, you know. I think academics do have a place in in seeking to identify the commonalities between systems and the differences. And we have lots of practitioners, but we have uh, less uh, uh, able um, academics who, who can contribute uh, to a, perhaps a, an international literature. Uh, but one thing that I would like to say is that we, uh, the indigenous people of, of New Zealand, have, have a, had a long relationship with Native Americans and First Nation people. Uh, around a whole range of policies, and there are a lot of really great uh, people in New Zealand who 
they specialise really in those relationships and understanding those issues. So my, my hope is that um, we'll see more of that happening in relation to criminal justice in the next decade or so. Mm. Well, it's just there's so much to cover, and your just your wide range of what you've served for and experienced in in your lifetime has been informs a very rich perspective, let me just say that. And I'm so grateful on behalf of the Peace Alliance and this series for your time with us tonight, Kim, and just want to encourage people to please go to dopeace.us and in the drop-down menu you'll see the 2012-2013 the archive menu, which includes, of course, last week's conversation with Dr. Johan Galtung and in the next Day will also include tonight's conversation with Kim Workman. And just also would like to add, please um, join us again next week as we have a very special council with Grandmother Mona Palaka. And then in the weeks to come, you can find more about the schedule upcoming for this month and beyond, again, at dopeace.us. So once again, everyone, thank you for your presence tonight in this council and to you, Kim, for all that you have served in this field and beyond. Thank Good you night, very everyone. much for that. I, I appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. And have a great night, everyone. And a good afternoon to you, Kim, in New Zealand. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.